Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Meet Andrew Dunnett. He is Group Director of SDGs and Sustainable Business at Vodafone. He is also the director of their Vodafone Foundation, Vodafone being the largest mobile and network operator in Europe and the world's largest Internet of Things connectivity provider, operating and partnering in 48 countries. It is still rare for a social innovation to be successfully incubated scaled and then embedded into core business activities. Vodafone, however, have a clutch of them. Skeptics might say that mobile technology has it easy in terms of avenues of social innovation development. Maybe so, but Andrew has a vision of scaling impact for lasting good, and he's making it happen. During our conversation today, you will hear just how Andrew gets things done, from partnering and incubating through to stakeholder engagement and influencing. Our conversation also focuses on the leading work Vodafone has been doing to tackle domestic violence. We explore why this issue is so important, and Andrew provides practical advice on how to activate other businesses to take positive action. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. So, Andrew, I want to start by exploring what your job title really means. I mean, Group Director of SDGs, Sustainable Business and foundations at Vodafone. What does that mean to you in practice? Well, I think it's it's quite a mouthful, but the, the focus is, is really clear. Um, we have a very strong purpose statement at the company where we're focused on three things, uh, building digital society, driving inclusion, and making contribution to the climate crisis that's, that's currently happening. So Although it sort of covers a lot in the job title, the focus is really, really, really clear. And, and I think the sort of unwritten script behind it is, you know, Vodafone is one of the largest communications company in the world, and we are delivering networks that are really transforming life in many ways. I think it was in 2010, there was about a billion people constantly connected. Now in 2021, there are 5 billion. And when you think about what that means in terms of health, education, inclusivity, and just our daily lives, it's truly transformational. I think the smartphone is the only product within a generation that goes from invention to to ubiquity. And when you sit back and think, so what is our role as a company in that transformation that's happening at the present, uh, we're all living through, then that's where my job comes in. And so my job is involved in working with many colleagues from different uh, nationalities, different businesses, different functions in the company to look at those three pillars, to look at what we're doing, and then to hit some very clear metrics and targets that we put around it. And then the other thing is, you know, we've had for 30 years in Vodafone, a very strong philanthropic program. And I was given responsibility for this about 12 years ago. And we spend about 50 million euros a year of direct cash in that area, working in the communities in which, in which Vodafone operates. And what we've really tried to do in that space is to 
combine our giving and technology together to make a difference. So looking at, and maybe we'll come onto this in a minute, but looking at some really difficult problems, long-term systemic problems, and just thinking about how uh, mobile technology, how connectivity, and how an investment of patient capital and cash from our foundation can work with NGOs to deliver that sort of change that we all want. So that's it. So it still sounds pretty massive, Andrew. And <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push you on it. I want to drill down yeah. a bit more. Actually, what does that mean in terms of focus right now? You know, yeah. we're at the beginning-ish of 2021. What does that mean in reality? Well, if you take the inclusion ambition, we've made a public commitment as a company that we will improve the lives of one billion people by 2025. What does that mean? That means that 480 million of those of those individuals we're focused on are going to be the beneficiaries of platforms that we're building through, through our philanthropic program, predominantly in education, digital skills, and health. What does it mean for the other half billion uh, looking at commercial products and tariffs that bring a further 50 million women into our network? Because we know that you know, there is still a disproportionate number of women who get access to connectivity in some of our markets to men. We also know that teenage boys are one and a half times more likely to have access to mobile technology than girls. And so we're working with Girl Effect. Uh, we have 8 million girls accessing platforms that we're running in, in three main markets with them and getting access to information at crucial stages of their development. So if you take inclusion as one, that's uh, when you drill it down, it's not a sort of broad statement of intent or purpose, but we've got very clear metrics as to what we want to do and deliver in each of those areas. And some of the estimates suggest that the global pandemic has set gender equality back 25 years. So picking up and, and asking more about that kind of gender inclusion element. What does this mean for the work that you are doing, perhaps beyond or including that kind of girl effect piece that you just mentioned? Well, I think it's a great question because we've seen the reports from UN, from the UN Women and others around how more women are engaged in, in, in the care sector, which is obviously taking the brunt of the pandemic. Hospitality, retail, tourism, more women proportionately are working in them and have seen job losses. And then, of course, the unequal division of domestic labour with more women homeschooling, caring for children, et cetera, et cetera. So I think as a company, we've been tracking this over the last 12 months during the pandemic. Uh, the company employs 36,000 women. And you know there have been two ways that we've really tried to contribute to those women within our business and, and support them on the basis of this research and information. Number one is by really focusing on flexible working and driving that really strong within the company and driving that, making that really very, very possible to everybody across the whole group, all 100,000 people, but predominantly, obviously, on the, on the back of this research. And then, of course, uh, last year, we launched uh, a domestic violence policy, which was really well received, as you can imagine, given the publicity that we also saw around uh, rising cases of domestic violence and supporting individuals through our HR community to have up to 10 days paid leave if they're in an abusive relationship and if they need to take time out to, to focus on that and also need support from colleagues within the company. So we certainly are tracking what's happening in this issue and in our own uh, company, in our own way, we're, we're trying to address it in a number of ways. 
And picking up a bit, Andrew, on that domestic violence and the gender-based violence work that you guys have arguably been leading the way on and definitely part of the kind of cohort of businesses who are really sort of pushing sort of frontiers and how to tackle this. What have you learned on this journey? Because I, I know that you haven't just worked on this since the pandemic. This has been something that's sort of been yeah. top of mind for a bit. It's a great question. And we began working in this area through, through our philanthropic program uh, 11, 12 years ago. And we began in Spain, where the Vodafone Spain Foundation, the request of the Red Cross, developed a mobile handset for high-risk survivors of domestic abuse. So at the time, the only support that could be given to a survivor would be to put a fixed line alarm system in their home. And the Red Cross runs various emergency control rooms in Spain, rather like our 999. And they asked Vodafone if the foundation would work with them on developing a handset. So they developed this handset called Tech SOS Texos, we call it. And it's simply at the push of a button, hold it down for three seconds. You open a direct line to the control room. The controller knows who the user is by the pre-ordination of that number into the system. And then they can hear everything that happens uh, in the room through an enhanced microphone. Uh, the aim of it really being is that what was happening in Spain, which is happening in so many other countries in which the company operates, is that the, the survivor ends up being locked up in their flat or their home while the p- perpetrator is at large. And so the, the chance to really rebuild your life after a prolonged period of abuse, you only feel safe when you're locked up when actually it should be the other way around. The perpetrator uh, should be the person who is constrained. So it started in Spain. It went, um, Vodafone Spain uh, ran it uh, in, in Spain very successfully. And we brought it to the UK uh, initially with, um, uh, with Thames Valley Police, because of course we're based in the Newbury office. And we started running it with 30 users directly connected to Thames Valley Police Control Room. We saw some remarkable data coming out of that from the, the initial cohort of users and uh, the result of which, uh, particularly in terms of a reduction in fear, a sense of empowerment. And so we started to run it nationally across the UK at zero profit. Vodafone UK took it on from the foundation. There was no way we could operationalize it in the sort of numbers, about 3,000 handsets every day being used now. And then out of that, we felt, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg in a way. This is the very high risk. These are people whose partners are coming out of jail. These are people whose partners are, are waiting trial. These are people who are subject to stalkers. But we know that one in four women suffer abuse uh, during their lifetime. And we know that of those women, you know, they will have 30 incidents before they go to the police. So what else could we do? And then we partnered with an, an NGO called Hestia to develop a very simple app called Bright Sky. You'll find it in the app stores where people could self-assess the status of their relationship. So we, we found out from research that they, they're more like talk to colleagues and to family about an abusive relationship. But what they brought like more than anything else is just a sense without talking to anybody about, well, what is the status of my relationship and how can I get help? So Bright Sky just does three things. It enables people to self-assess. It enables them to keep a diary, which, of course, the police will always ask when you get to that moment where the law enforcement authorities become involved or when did it start? And then also the geolocation of local services. So we then went to that app and that app is now, I think, in I think we're 12 or 13 countries. I, I can't keep up with it over the last 12 months, how much we've rolled it out. And then the company on the back of that, you know, really felt, well, what about what's happening within our own company? What can we do? And so developed a policy, which I think was the first a global company did to address this issue and to enable people to have, as I said, up to 10 days paid leave and to train HR managers in handling this issue 
And we did a piece of evaluation with a, an external evaluator called Jane Pillinger, who's quite an expert in this, and to see some of the incidents over the last 12 months as to how the policy has helped individuals and colleagues within the company is, is truly breathtaking, really. So I think what we've learned is probably, you know, re- really to the core of what, what you do, where, where when you find a way in which your, your very purpose as a company can have an impact perhaps beyond the direct focus of the company, then you really get a sense of emotional connection with the people within the company. So I think when we started looking at the foundation, we felt that it was a great grant-making trust, but it was supporting individuals and charities that are fabulous, but had nothing to do with our core purpose as a company, namely this connected, connected world. And once you build that sort of connected world into your thinking and you invest patient capital, not a short-term return on investment, but patient capital, and you approach some of these issues, then I find that people in the company, maybe initially they are a little suspicious of some of of the work, but then once you explain and connect with the core purpose of the company, you get a real empowering connection with with colleagues in the company and, and and I suppose that's what we've really learned and you know I think we're just at the beginning because this issue is a, a horrendous issue that affects every company and every culture in which we are operating and um, I'm pleased we've we've done what we have but I think there's so much more that we need to do. What an amazing story journey but also the kind of example of as you say the business actually being able to scale up such a huge social impact opportunity. Mm. Andrew, clearly you've been on that journey of that kind of sort of patient capital all the way through to kind of embedding it back into the core business. What would be your advice to somebody else who's perhaps sitting in another business who's trying to think that they could potentially do this, but doesn't know how to? I mean, how, how do you go about it? There are a number of trends at the moment. If I was in that situation where I was joining a company that was either small or large and was asking some of these questions, I think there are I would look at a number of sort of external, almost like external forces and try and bring it to the table. I think firstly, you know, the investor community is really focusing on these issues much more seriously than they have ever done before. You know, we've all been following, interestingly, the sort of Larry Fink annual letters that have gone out. But I think investors are wanting to understand more the purpose agenda of companies and the value that they're adding. And I think, you know, sometimes they talk about a sort of move from a, from a shareholder to more of a stakeholder. Um, so I'd want to research and look at what does that mean for the sector that I'm in and what does it mean for the company that I'm in? I think the second thing I would look at is whenever I meet with a business leader within Vodafone or whether we're going to partner with another organization, I'm always trying to work out where they're coming from. I always have a sort of triangle in my head. Bottom left is the sort of Friedmanites, you know, and, and those people who you know, still believe that the business of business is, is to make a profit, return to shareholders, and that's where it begins and ends. And of course, you know, that was, what, 1970, I think he wrote that essay a long, long time ago, and, and a huge amount has happened. And I think there are very few of those or less of them now. And, and But there's quite a group in the sort of bottom right, which I would sort of put in a sort of more of a compliance mentality, that maybe a lot has changed since 1970, when Milton Friedman wrote the essay, what percentage of the company I was joining is tied up in the brand what value of the company is, is, is about its brand. And of course, brands can be shattered overnight, just like personal reputation. There are groups who are sort of, who recognize that, who recognize Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, Foreign Corrupt Practices Acts, uh, Acts on Taxation, Acts on the Environment, 
So there's a huge amount of legislation as well that wasn't around in 1970 that you now need to, to comply with. And so I think I would be meeting the people in the company or people in my own company if I was in that job and just say, you know, where, where are they all coming from? And then at the top of the triangle, and you, know, you meet them within Vodafone, you meet them in other companies, you meet them in other walks of life. People who, whatever organization they're running, and however large or small, sort of have, a, have an over-the-hedge perspective. Where, where's the world going and what's our role in it? And what do we need to do to contribute? And I think those people are much more in the zeitgeist of, of the time. They're much more where the younger generation is at, where the future is at. And, and so I think the second thing I would, you know, I'd look at if I was taking on a new role is to, to find those allies in the company who are really at the top of the triangle, who really get a sense. And you know, when you talk to them, you know, you know, immediately, uh, you know, that you're, you're, you're in that space and then you can trade with them and you, you can begin to put on that. They have this intuitive sense of that's, that's where things are going and that's what we need to do. And then you can build a framework on the basis. I think those would be the two things that, you know, I'd begin with. There's lots more, but I mean, that's, that's my startup term. Um, I want to sort of pull back a bit and ask you a bit about kind of what your view is from the position that you're sitting in. I mean, you're sat at a sort of unique role. It's global. You're in an organization that's a sort of leading edge of technology. What are the trends that you're seeing that perhaps others aren't necessarily aware of, but they should be? Maybe I just give a sort of couple of examples of uh, you know what I'm working on. You know, one of the things I'm was sort of struggling on at the moment is is the the power of for us the power of technology to transform the lives, particularly in 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 sub-Saharan Africa. So you know whether that's connected education, where you have no fixed line system, and suddenly you've got mobile, and suddenly you've got the capacity to get connected. I mean, I think Eric Schmidt put it beautifully a few years ago when he said, you know, people have no access to the written word. When they get connected, they get access to anything that's ever been written. It's a revolution. We don't quite know how it's going to roll out, but it is going to happen. Of course, COVID has made a, a big impact on that. But I think one of the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm really most proud of that we are a building, and again, we've been working on it for about eight, nine years, is adjacent innovations around mobile money. So, you know, if you take, uh, you'll probably have heard of M-Pesa and, you know, it's, it's Africa's largest uh, money transfer platform. I think there's about 55 million who use it every day. And basically, it means if you don't have a bank account, you can save money in your phone and then you can, have, you, know, you can send the money mobile to mobile. And we used to write checks for a hospital in Dar es Salaam called CCBRT, an amazing charity hospital, a very impressive hospital. And we used to sort of fund them charitably. And then about uh, eight years ago, one of their uh, researchers said, look, you know, we have three theaters and one of them is, is empty or half empty. And that, that theater is for maternal health surgery. So for women who've had obstructed labor, Often the baby dies, often they become incontinence, called obstetric fistula. It's a big issue in the SDGs in maternal health. And we know there are 3,000 cases every year in Tanzania, but we are not seeing people coming in for restorative surgery, and we just don't know why. So they did research, and there were two reasons. One, women thought it was a natural consequence of childbirth. And secondly, they have no means, because they're ostracized as a result of this condition, they have no means to come into hospital. So this, this researcher said, look, Vodacom, would you be willing to put all of our volunteers and our, the people who promote our work onto mobile money platform? And then whenever they find a woman with this condition, we, they phone us up, we jointly diagnose, and then we as a hospital would like to send them the bus fare so that the ambassador, the volunteer can buy the bus fare, put the woman on the bus, she comes to Dar es Salaam, she gets the surgery. And I went to see it um, 
and I didn't really know about this condition. I felt very ignorant, but I didn't know about it. And I sat in a ward with 30 women, uh, 25 of whom had come to hospital via, via mobile money, the average payment being $20. And of the, of the 25 women I, I, I met, one of whom was over 70. So she'd lived with female incontinence for over 40 years as a result of a pregnancy that went wrong. And I emailed the CEO on the plane on the way back. And I just said, I just cannot believe what I've seen. And, you know, $25 sent by a, a mobile text has completely given this woman her dignity back. But too late, in a way, it's been too long. And um, he said, share it with, with the company. You know, tell us what this technology is doing. So kind of long story short, I did. Uh, it's not an easy subject to, to broach. And uh, I found a way of doing it sensitively with sort of authenticity around it. And um, kind of long story short, here we are nine years on. We've had uh, 13,000 women have been transported to date through that program. We've got a program that we built out of it around called MAMA, which is in Ghana, Tanzania and Lesotho, where instead of waiting for obstetric crisis and the tragedy of that, you know, you get the woman to a clinic. And of course, as you'll know, if you travel to those parts, you know, there are a few ambulances still and the roads aren't great. And so the only way of getting there is through taxi. So we just use taxis and volunteer drivers and pay them 50% up front. They pick up the woman in some form of crisis. They bring her into the clinic. They get access to a midwife. And if they need a C-section, then they'll have to go on further up the system. But we are, you know, we're, we're working on 84,000 per year in those three countries. And we're trying to build Africa's biggest off-grid emergency transport system for, for pregnant women. And um, so that's one of them. I've got loads of things we're working on. But for me, that's one of the, the most exciting, exciting projects I'm working on because um, you go out uh, I was in Ghana just before lockdown uh, last year, and you, you go out and and you see uh, literally lives transformed by a relatively small amount of money, a brilliant platform, which is mobile money, and a alignment of a specific problem with a specific piece of technology, which is very basic to implement, and where everybody in the community is involved and and people are also getting remunerated for their work. So it's you know it's it's one of the things that I'm I'm working on. There are lots of others I could talk about, but that's one of the things. Wow, incredible yeah. stories. And it just shows the kind of ability for mobile technology to kind of almost leapfrog some yeah. of the kind of traditional developmental stages. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I mean I'll give you another one and more in in a sort of European context. So we were approached by by Mencap three years ago now. I mean, this stuff takes time. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is the problem. But it was, it was three years ago, two or three years ago, I can't remember. And one of the individuals who was, uh, it was somebody in the company who was um, supporting Mencap to buy, I think it was 20 homes in London to expand their, the number of their homes in, in the capital. And, and um, you know, they, they were looking at the properties they were buying. And because the individual was senior in our company, you know, they hadn't, it was quite clear that there was no, there was no connected solution there was no connected alarm system. There was no connected doors. There were no connected windows. There was no connectivity empowering the residents. You know, he said to me, you know, what if they could have a, a simple tablet, the resident uh, carer, and, and could connect to all the residents? You know, they could um, connect with each other by voice, by video. They would have some form of internet IoT devices, which weren't obtrusive or, you know, like Big Brother but enabled the care worker to, to know that everything was okay. So we built that platform. It took us about 18 months working with MenCap called Connected Living. We're now going through sort of final stages for industrial rollout and also for rollout in other countries. 
where you know you are really enabling people to live their own lives much more independently and you're enabling the carer to do more of an effective job you know and that, that's another one that we're i think we're in about 35 homes in the uk at the moment which is really part of our test bed but that's another another program and i think the the thing that that's the most challenging part when you look at stuff like mmama or you look at stuff like connected living or you look at the bright sky app that we work on a domestic violence it's innovation at scale in a sustainable way that that's what we're really about and that's the challenge it's not just about innovation and a pilot or a test bed that doesn't go anywhere for us you know success has got to be scale and and in a sustainable way and 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 that's a bit more challenging a good challenge to set yourselves yeah if if that's not the sort of ultimate challenge and almost that sort of leads me onto my next question really andrew clearly as you say this stuff takes time that's the problem but also that's how it should be you know it should be that it's thought about properly what should we expect to see next from you in terms of what you're doing but also in terms of like making that lasting impact what's next well i think i think a couple of things one really continuing to drive what we're doing to scale so whether that's some of the programs that i've mentioned earlier our work in domestic violence you know continuing to to take existing programs to the next level i think in terms of of new work we've got a an internal you know with all our foundations we've been trawling both partners and and internally with our colleagues to look at you know three or four uh, new applications that we want to bring you know bring to life we've allocated a 10 million euro fund for this we'll obviously work with partners to try and uh, and bring other apps but but to scale in a much bigger way than we've done so far we we created an app a few years ago called dream lab which is basically a citizen science app which enables people while they're tablet or or smartphone is charging overnight to enable the computing power of that uh, device to be used initially it was in the research uh, regarding cancer and connecting all those devices was saving initially we did it with a, an institute in australia called the garvin institute but uh, imperial has, has got on board with us and then uh, imperial uh, changed it from cancer research to covid research and we've got about a million dreamers uh, who are on that platform across, I think, 15 countries in which we operate. We really feel, you know, that we could, we could go so much bigger, that a million is great, but what about 20 million? What about 50 million? And what about bringing and researching other applications that we could bring to bear that, that you know, make huge public benefit? And again, it's back to where I began. It's about putting in the cash, the patient capital. It's about finding the right partners to work with who really share the vision and the commitment to do this over time. It's bringing the technology know-how from within the company, which is absolutely critical. And then it's, it's about staying in it, you know, enabling yourself to, to have that. It always takes twice as much money and twice as long to do what you want to do, but having enough time to really deliver and execute. So we, we, we've, got, um, we've got those apps. I, I think the other thing we're really, really looking at at the moment is the whole area of digital skills. Um, we set a 20 million euro commitment to that across our European markets and uh, how we do more in enhancing the digital skills of the communities in which, in which we're operating in Europe. So that's, that's coming up. We're looking, uh, we've got a piece of philanthropy research coming. We're 30 years old this year. And one of the things that a, a number of our partners have, have asked us to look at in sub-Saharan Africa was just the leadership of, of black-led organizations and charities and NGOs and the, the amount of investment that gets through to them from the philanthropic community. So we're, 
We, we worked with an amazing organization called Shofco in the Canberra slum in Nairobi that I think provides water to now something like 25, 30% of that slum that runs girls' schools. And we're looking at, um, we're, they've asked us really to look at that question about how much of the development funds gets to these Black-led community organizations on the ground. So we've got some of that coming out later in this year. We've got more research around domestic violence and our work in the community on that. So, so yeah, there's, there's quite a bit in the pipeline. <laughs> wow, staying busy, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> yeah. um, and my last question for us today is really, I mean, for someone who's keen to get their organization to deliver more social good, what would be your advice to them? You know, I think it was a really interesting piece of research came out this week by Corn Ferry and the executive search company. And it's called The Rise of the Chief Sustainability Officer. And they interviewed a lot of people in my position. And I think I would just, you know, suggest to any listeners just to go and read that piece of research because there were, there were some really interesting findings that they got from individuals. I was less interested in, you know, where they think the role is going and more actually interested in what people in my position were saying. And let me just read out to you sort of, you know, five things that people might find useful that, that came out of it. You know, the, the, the sort of balance between altruism on the one hand and business acumen on the other. You know what I mean? This balance for people in our role. The balance of sort of ego over exploring possibilities. So how much one advocates and how much one facilitates others, I think, is what, uh, what was going on there. Um, rigidity over tolerance for ambiguity. I think probably, you know, the art of, of having a vision, but also trying to compromise. And I haven't read through all the, the answers or whatever, but that was a really interesting one as well. I think thinking too small over a worldview of business in society. So not having a big enough vision, I think, was another thing that came through. And then authenticity was another issue that was absolutely critical in their sort of findings. So I think I would say I would encourage anyone to, to get involved in the space that I'm very fortunate to be involved in. I think I'd be very happy to to have a chat with anybody who's who's really interested. I think I would look at that research, and it's a very exciting time to be working in sustainable business, to be working along the SDGs, to be working in philanthropy, and it's it's also incredibly fulfilling, incredibly fulfilling because I think in each of those areas you get a real sense of you know the opportunity to make a difference, and I think if you connect it very aligned to the core purpose of of the company, whatever sector you're in, I think you'll make the biggest difference both for the company and for the wider society and and drive deep personal satisfaction. Well, on that brilliant note, I will draw this conversation to a conclusion. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. And for anybody listening to this conversation, I will put all the links to those references that Andrew put into the words that sit alongside the podcast. Andrew, thank you. Absolute pleasure. And no, it's great talking to you. Thanks for your time. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 